Good morning, church. Good to see you guys all again. Uh, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. The title of the sermon is Overcome Evil with Good. And once you're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And this is what our Lord Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning. We ask you to be with us and bless us as we dive into your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible, Lord, just so that I don't mess your word up. And it's your word going to your people, Lord. Um, This text is hard, (laughs) and it's hard for um, a lot of believers throughout the ages. And so just be with us, God. Inscribe your word on our hearts. Conform us to our Lord Jesus, and just may you be glorified in that. And God, we pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, just by hearing your word today, that you would call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so God, we just pray all these things. We pray that you would get all the glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. (coughs) In 2016, the movie Hacksaw Ridge hit the movie theaters, telling the true story of a certain corporal named Desmond Doss. It tells of how how his unit eventually took an impossible piece of real estate in the Battle of Okinawa in World War II, which was the worst battle of the whole war at least for us. Now, the movie was compelling for a lot of reasons, but one thing that stood out to me was actually the first half of the movie, before you even get to the battle. Corporal Dawes was a conscientious objector. What that meant is he refused to pick up a weapon and kill others, but he did want to serve. So he wanted to serve as a medic, but a medic that doesn't shoot back, a medic that only saves lives. And because of this, his unit absolutely hated him, They gave him a blanket party. That means you throw a blanket over somebody and you beat the snot out of them. Um, That's not supposed to happen in the military anymore, but it did then. I'm sure it still does now. But he got beat really bad. His commander hated him so much that he tried to get him court-martialed and imprisoned. His whole unit thought he was this big wimp because he didn't want to kill. And so for a very long time, they were incredibly evil to him. And it hurt him, and you could tell it hurt him, but he never retaliated. He never fought back. He never returned their insults. He lived above reproach to such a point that all their accusations came to nothing. And then when the battle finally came, he saved a lot of their lives. These people who hated them, he saved their lives. And by the end of the battle, he was actually the most loved man in his entire unit. And the unit wouldn't even start their battle till after he prayed. So this was a guy who was universally hated and then universally respected. To me, that is the most compelling part of the movie. People who hated him and were evil to him, 
could not get him to sink to their level. And in the end, they all came around to him. Now, the reason why Doss lived the way he lived was because of our text this morning. He chose something better than retaliation against these people who were mean to him. He chose something better than revenge. And he did so because Jesus commands us to something that is better. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, the point of the text is this. Concerning adversaries, do not take matters into your own hands. Concerning adversaries, do not take matters into your own hands. Well, what, is it, what does that mean? Like, what does it look like? How, how do we do this? What does it look like to not take matters into our own hands? Jesus will show us what it looks like by giving us four hypothetical scenarios. In four hypothetical scenarios, he'll show us what it looks like. The first scenario is how to deal with an insult. What do you do if somebody insults you? The second one is a lawsuit. Third one is oppression. And the fourth one is what do you do with a beggar? All four of these, he's going to show us not to take matters into our own hands. He's going to show us how on a, on a personal level, we're supposed to respond to people who act as adversaries or even an annoyance. He'll show us how we're to, to react to that. Now, before diving into our text this morning, let's quickly remember or recall where we are at. We're getting further and further into the most famous sermon ever preached, which is Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. He started off with these eight magnificent announcements of what the flourishing person is like. And you could summarize those all like this. If you put all eight together, it's telling us this, that the person who flourishes in the eyes of God is the person that lives in this world right now trying to imitate Jesus but they do so in light of the world to come. Okay, so we are imitating Jesus here and now to glorify God, but we do so in our hope of the perfect world to come. Now, the Christian life, the life that lives like this, it's gonna look a certain way. And Jesus told us what it looks like, salt and light. We are to be the salt and light of the world. As salt, we are distinct from the world in in its sinfulness. We, We live in a holy way. And we should also flavor life, and we should preserve that which is good. As light, we shine in the darkness. We show the world what right looks like. And then Jesus topped it off by telling us straight up, he commanded us. He said, let your good works shine. Why? So that the world will see and glorify our Father in heaven. That is how we live imitating Christ right now in light of the world to come. But that poses a question, okay? Good works. What good works? What good works will make us live like salt and light? Jesus gave an answer that surprises a lot of Christians. It surprises them because they've been taught wrongly for a very long time. But what Jesus says is we can live like salt and light by living according to God's law. And that's where people get confused because they're like, wait, I thought the law is bad and it's, it's gone. Well, no, the law is still God's lamp to the feet of, to the, feet of the believer. John Calvin rightly uh, noted that the law has three purposes, and this is where people get confused. You just got to know the three purposes. Purpose number one, it shows the sinner his need for salvation. None of us could keep God's law perfectly. It shows us we need a savior. Reason number two for the law, or purpose number two, is to restrain evil in the society. That the, the government uses the law as a guide on how to set up a society that is just and where people can flourish. And then the third use or purpose of the law is to show the Christian, the person who's already saved, how to live in a way that pleases God. Because the Bible says the law is good, it's holy, it's spiritual. 
That's what Paul says in Romans. So the third use of the law is it's a guide for the believer to live in a way that makes us appear as salt and light. Jesus is talking about the third use of the law. If you want to live as salt and light, then live in some sense according to the law. He told us right after that, I did not come to abolish it. Not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away as long as the universe exists. He then warned. He said, the person who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus shocks the audience by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the reason why that shocks is because everyone back then thought these religious leaders were near perfect people, that these guys, if anybody followed the law of God, it was them. But Jesus was not impressed with them. See, they had a righteousness that looked good on the outside, but their hearts were not with God. So if we are supposed to be God's salt and his light, living in a Christ-centered way, which means we, we keep the law in the way that Christ teaches us to, then we have to ask, what does that look like? We definitely have to ask if the religious experts were doing it wrong. we got to know what right looks like. Well, that's the part of the Sermon of the Mount that we have been on for a while now. Jesus answers that question by giving us six examples. He quotes the law six times, and then he tells us what it means to keep it in a way that pleases God. And what he's been teaching us is it's never about what's just on the surface. It's always about what's in the heart. So, for example, do not murder means do not have hateful anger in your heart. Do not, do not commit adultery means don't lust after other people if you're married. And if you're single, don't lust after married people. Just don't lust. <laughs> it also means don't frivolously divorce and remarry because that's a form of adultery as well. When it comes to keeping oaths, what Jesus told us is your word should be so trustworthy, so reliable that you shouldn't need to swear an oath. Your word should be so solid that your yes and your no is more than enough. See, all of these examples showed that the Pharisees missed the mark of keeping the law because they focused on the, on the commandments on the outside without focusing on the heart of the commandments and the heart of the person obeying or keeping the commandment. But that's what Jesus is calling us to do, to understand it at its core heart level. So, with all that, in this morning's text, we are on the fifth, number five, out of those six examples of how we should rightly keep the law. And I've got to say, this one's probably one of the hardest for a lot of us. I think Jesus sets a really, really high bar here. And at the same time, though, because he sets a high bar, this is one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied passages in the Bible. Some people will overapply this passage to the point of absurdity. But then others will completely ignore it because they say what Jesus said is unrealistic. He can't possibly mean what he said here. So let's just ignore it. And then others say, let's follow it too far. And you might say, how could you follow it too far? You'll see. You'll see. The point is neither of those options will do. Instead, we need to see what Christ is saying and uh, pretty much obey him according to his intent. And as I said at the beginning, concerning adversaries, don't take matters into your own hands. That's the principle. So what I want us to do is look at verse 38 so we could see him lay down that principle. Then eventually we'll get into the four examples. So look at verse 38. Jesus quotes the law. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, 
Jesus is going to follow the same pattern that he has been, right? He'll quote or summarize a command from the Old Testament law. He'll then give us a deeper meaning by saying, but I tell you. And, and then we'll understand what he's getting at here. So first, let's look at his quoting of the Old Testament law. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And indeed, the Israelites have heard this. It's in the law of Moses no less than three times. I'll just share one of them. Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25. It says, if there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, bruise for a bruise, wound for a wound. And then the same thing is repeated in Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20, and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. Now, this particular law is famously called the lex talionis, which just means the law according to kind, okay, meaning punishment according to kind. Now, our problem is normally when we hear the phrase eye for an eye, we assume that it's talking about revenge. So somebody might wrong you, and then your friends might say, pay that sucker back, eye for an eye, man. And that's how we tend to hear this. But that is not what this command is all about. If you read the Old Testament commandment carefully and pay attention to the context, it's not talking to you, the individual, but it's talking to the society as a whole. It is speaking to the judges and the criminal justice system. Whenever an injustice happens, God wanted to make sure that the response to injustice is justice. And look, there's two ways you can make injustice worse. First, you could do nothing. Injustice happens, a crime happens, you do nothing, which would then let the criminal get away with it. And that then is a greater injustice because it incentivizes even more crime, more misbehavior. And furthermore, you're saying that the victim of the crime doesn't matter. So listen, the crime has to be punished. Otherwise, injustice spreads like cancer. But the second way you can make injustice worse <clears throat> is by overpunishing it. If someone steals a pack of gum and you chop off their hand, that mutilation is a greater injustice. Why? Because that pack of gum is, has nowhere near the same value as the hand that you just chopped off. See, justice is supposed to be proportional to the crime or the offense. We often hear the punishment should fit the crime. That comes from eye for an eye. That's a biblical, uh, a biblical position. It, it must not be insane retribution. When communist dictators would execute people just for questioning the party line, that's over, uh, over judging people or, or over punishing people. And so that's the kind of thing that, that we're to avoid. Now, this Old Testament commandment was meant to make sure that neither of these two things happened. It would not allow the society to do nothing about the injustice, and neither would it let the society do too much about it. They were not allowed to look the other way and let the criminal go free, but they weren't allowed to inflict a punishment that would be a greater injustice than the original offense. It had to match the crime. So life for life means just that. If you murder someone, the punishment matches, that matches it is your own death. But it stops there. Society can't go and kill your family too. Only the murderer gets punished. And an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, bruise for a bruise, wound for a wound, simply means if someone damages any part of you or your property, that the punishment has to match it. In other words, it's not tooth for a bruise, it's bruise for a bruise. It's not eye for a tooth, 
right? It has to be proportional. The punishment should be no less and no more than what was inflicted upon you. And of course, eventually they came to a point where they realized a lot of this, um, there could be uh, financial fines that would be an equivalent punishment for what people did. The bottom line is justice is about balance. And when there's no justice, the imbalance will weaken the entire fabric of society. Now, you have a lot of people out there today that speak against proportionate punishments like this, and and they always say this in the safety of their gated communities. But once they're the victim of something, all of a sudden their tune changes. Once they step out of their safe little bubble and see with their own eyes the horrors that people do to other people, they start to really want balance that only justice can can provide. And listen, we've all lived through this in the last couple years. Think of all the fools who cried, defund the police, right? And certain cities did just that, and then their crime rates spiked up, and now a lot of those same people are saying, "Uh, could we bring the police back? We need more funding, okay? Because again, the answer wasn't to then just look the other way. It wasn't, and so now they're, they're asking for that, uh, that funding. Now, the Old Testament teaches that the state has the job of delivering out justice, and the New Testament will show us the same thing, and I'll quote a couple verses in a little while. So I say all that, and you might be thinking, okay, I'm confused. What's, what's the problem? Why is Jesus bringing this commandment up? Why does he think we need to understand the heart of this commandment? After all, this commandment's not talking to me as an individual. It's talking to the justice system. But that's exactly the point. Jesus knows that we don't want to limit this to the justice system. Jesus knows that we personally want to claim justice for ourselves. He knows that we have this propensity in our heart to want to take matters into our own hands. You insult me, I'm going to insult you. You start the fight, I'm going to finish it. You sue me, I'm going to countersue you until you are homeless. He knows that is what is in our hearts. And so because of this, Jesus corrects our hearts in the first part of verse 39. So take a look at it. He says this. He says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Or we could paraphrase it this way. Don't take matters into your own hands. Now, what Jesus is saying here is very interesting. He's acknowledging that your adversary is evil. He calls him an evildoer. This person is doing something evil. This person is doing something evil against you. And in your flesh, you are going to want to retaliate. You are likely going to say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, let's go. Yet Jesus says, no, do not resist the person, do not return fire. You might be saying, well, what about eye for an eye? What about tooth for a tooth? I should retaliate in order to keep that law. And Jesus is saying, no. Okay, now we have to ask what's going on here. Is he teaching that this law is wrong? Is he overturning this law? When he says, but I tell you, is he contradicting it? No, because in every other case where he says, but I tell you, he's not contradicting the law. He's telling you how it applies to you more specifically. And the same is true here. So how should we understand this? Jesus is making a distinction between the judicial approach and the ethical approach to wrongdoing. They are two different things. What do I mean? Well, the judicial approach is just that. What should the justice system do to the evil person when he commits evil? The answer is clear. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That has not gone away. But the second question is, what should I do to the evil person that does evil specifically against me? Well, I'm not the justice system, am I? And neither are you. I'm just an individual. 
I do not have the authority of the justice system. I cannot bring society back into balance by retaliation. As much as Batman makes it look like it'll work, it doesn't. In fact, by retaliating, I'm committing my own injustice and I'm only adding to more societal imbalance. Why? Because I'm acting like I'm Caesar when I'm not Caesar. I've mentioned this before, and I think I need to give us a little more background on this just so we put this together rightly. There are at least three spheres of authority that God grants to humans. Now, it is delegated authority. It does not belong to us in and of ourselves, but three spheres where God grants authority to humans. First is the authority of parents. This is the most fundamental sense of authority. This is the fundamental building block of society. Parents rule their children while they are children. Some of you parents with grown children, you have to understand, while they are children. Okay, But the point is, while they're children, we rule our children, we set the law, we enforce the law, and God does give us an instrument of justice. The Bible calls it the rod. That's how we enforce the law. But our rule, our law, and our ability to use the rod only exists in our own home. That is where the authority stops. I have no authority to set the rules for kids outside my family, and it ain't the 1950s. I can't give them whoopings either. You know, you mess up my lawn, boy. No, I mean, you, you just, you know, it, it, it stops at the family level. Now, the second level of authority is the, the sphere of the state or the government. They set the laws for the society as a whole, and they enforce the law. Their instrument of justice is not the rod, but the sword. Okay? Consider these two New Testament passages that show us that the governments still are supposed to do eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They're still supposed to administer justice. Paul says this in Romans 13.4. He says of the government, he says, It is God's servant, his deacon in the Greek, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. And then, of course, Peter, the apostle, says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do what is good. Right? So they're given the authority to punish those in society who do what's evil. Now, the state, though, only has authority over its particular sphere. It enacts laws that relate to justice. The state does not have authority over the first sphere. They don't get to tell you how to parent. Okay? They don't get to tell you what's right in your home unless you're breaking laws. Okay? If you're starving your kids, physically abusing them, sexually abusing them, then guess what? They, you've entered into their sphere because you're committing crimes. And they can come in and exert their authority in your house. But apart from that, they can't. Okay? The, that's the only time the state could intervene. Um, because it's still within their proper authority. So you got the family, you got the state. The third sphere of authority is the church. This is the sphere of doctrine and practice, okay? And so the church follows the Bible. The Bible lays down the law for us, and then it gives us an instrument of justice called excommunication. So notice, parents have the rod, Caesar has the sword, the church has excommunication. As long as we keep these neatly divided and we don't confuse them, you have balance. Okay, you have balance, you have harmony. But when the state tries to act like the parent and tell you how to raise your kids or threatens to take them away when they're stepping in on your religious rights 
And it, there's a problem. When the church oversteps its authority and tries to punish crimes, as it has done throughout history, there's going to be problems. And the problem always comes because somebody is exceeding their sphere of authority granted by God. Now, what does that have to do with this? Going back to retaliation, eye for an eye is a prerogative of the state, not the individual. Okay? So if you take matters into your own hands, you have exceeded your own sphere of authority. And you've claimed for yourself something not granted to you. You are acting like Caesar when you are not. So getting back to my point, you cannot claim the judicial approach for yourself because you are just an individual person. So if you can't claim the judicial approach to respond to evildoing, then what approach can you claim? You could claim the ethical approach. Your personal response to wrongdoing is not a matter of law, but it's a matter of ethics. It's not a matter of society as a whole, but it's a matter of you as an individual. And so Jesus' point is you cannot treat your adversaries with the judicial approach. Yes, eye for an eye is true, but it's not true for you. Okay, I mean, it is if you break the law, the government's coming after you. But meaning eye for an eye, it's not for you to do, is my point. What's for you to do, Jesus says, is to not resist the evildoer. And listen, what Jesus is saying here is exactly what the Old Testament says. When the Old Testament speaks of the judicial approach, yeah, it's eye for an eye. But when it speaks to individuals, when it speaks of the ethical approach, it's saying what Jesus is saying. Consider these two passages. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus is going to use this passage in his sixth Old Testament example, but we'll hit that next time. Proverbs 29, or 24, 29, he says, don't say, I'll do to him what he did to me. I'll repay the man for what he's done. Okay, he says, don't say that. Okay, so the Old Testament's not saying anything different. Jesus is laying the same principle, but I think he's going to teach it in a way that, that seems even more radical. Okay? But the principle is just what I said at the beginning. Concerning adversaries, don't take matters into your own hands. Now, this is important for a couple reasons. I'm sure most of you have heard of Gandhi, the, the Indian philosopher, Hindu scholar. He criticized the Bible, and he specifically criticized eye for an eye. He said, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And then a bunch of well-meaning liberals uh, have repeated this ever since. And a lot of my high school students, when I was a high school teacher, they'd be like, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, man. And I'm thinking, like, you're blaspheming God and his word. And look, at the end of the day, the fact is the statement is really dumb. If governments do not punish crime, then we end up with anarchy and multitudes will die. If governments overpunish crime, then we end up with tyranny and still multitudes will die. Okay? And, I'm, and I know Gandhi understood this because he lobbied for just laws. And that's what eye for an eye is. It is having laws that are just. That's what it's all about. It actually goes all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi in ancient Babylon. Societies have understood this principle of justice for a very, very long time. I think at the end of the day, we know what Gandhi was getting at. He was saying that if individuals treat each other according to eye for an eye, then you're going to have ongoing blood feuds. And that's true. Think of our own American context. What's the most famous feud ever? The Hatfields and the McCoys. I mean, it was a bloody feud, and even Looney Tunes, having no shame, would make fun of it later. But the fact is, you had two families. It started out over a disagreement over a pig, 
And then eventually it turned into an all-out war where they killed like dozens of each other. It was, it was bad. And that's what happens when individuals wrongly act as judge, jury, and executioner and don't let the, the government do what it's supposed to do. So, that's the, the, so Gandhi's wrong in what he says, but if what he means is individuals shouldn't do this, well, then Jesus is saying the same thing. Now, before moving on in the text, there's also one more thing I should mention. Some Christians throughout history have actually understood that eye for an eye is talking about the government, but they think Jesus overturned it. They think he overturned it even in the judicial approach. Most of you have heard of Leo Tolstoy, famous Russian novelist. In his most famous work, War and Peace, he actually argued that because of what Jesus taught, that the military, the court systems, and the police should outright be abolished. Shouldn't have them at all. And then it would force the world into a utopia. No stinking way. Tolstoy, I'm sure we'll see you in heaven, but man, it, it was, he was just wrong. Now, he believed he was getting that from what Jesus was saying here, but it goes without saying he gravely misunderstood this. This that Jesus is teaching us, this is about personal ethics, not society enforcing the law. So I think with all that, we got the point. Jesus laid down the principle, don't retaliate. But of course, that causes people to ask questions, and rightly so. And one thing I do want to say is the Pharisees also taught against retaliation. You got some popular level commentaries that'll say Jesus had to say this because the Pharisees were all about retaliation. They're just making that up. If you read the early Mishnah, they were against this as well. And even the pagan philosophers like Seneca were against retaliation, okay? Here's the issue. Even though Pharisees and philosophers and anybody else would teach this principle, they often didn't live according to it. And you're probably thinking, those hypocrites, see, you know, they teach it, but they don't live according to it. Look, we got the same problem. We know what this says, but how many of us retaliate? Okay, and so that's why Jesus is teaching this. And one thing in the Greek is he's hammering the word you a lot in this text. You, second person singular, not y'all, but you and you and you. He's talking to us directly because he knows this is a problem with you. And this is a problem with, with me. We have the same problem. So we want to know then what does it look like to follow what Jesus is teaching here? And this is where he helps us with four hypothetical scenarios. So let's look at the rest of verse 39 to see the first scenario. This scenario is how you deal with an insult. Here's what Jesus says in the rest of verse 39. He says, on the contrary, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, these first words, on the contrary, relate to what he just said. He said, don't resist, don't resist the evildoer. Okay, well, what do I do instead? On the contrary, do this. Do what? If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, you might be wondering why I'm saying that this scenario is one of insult. Because on the surface, it sounds like an assault. You know, you're getting struck. And some people have taken it that way as an, as an assault. Some people absurdly think this means you cannot defend yourself and others. In the Anabaptist tradition of Christianity, meaning the Amish, the Mennonites, the German Baptists, they actually believe this requires pacifism in totality. They believe that this passage rules out serving in the military because 
You can't fire back at the enemy. Um, and, and I remember there was a guy that I knew that was getting into the German Baptist. Eventually he got out of it, but he told me very specifically that if a criminal breaks into your house, they believed even if the criminal is sexually assaulting and murdering your family, you cannot intervene and defend yourself. You have to just sit there and do nothing and and let them have their way and, and ultimately kill you. That is not what this is teaching. Okay, so let me quickly respond to that, that, I would say, absurd interpretation of this passage. First, let me talk about the military. Let's think back to what I said about the three spheres. Is the military a matter of the individual, or does it belong to the society? It belongs to the society. The military is Caesar's sword, and God said that Caesar has the sword for a reason. It's actually God's servant to punish wrongdoing with the eye for an eye principle. So in the capacity as a soldier, it is right to return fire as long as the war is just. You're not doing so on the level of a Christian individual. You're doing so as a representative of a nation state that's bearing the sword of Caesar. And when it comes to your family and somebody breaks into your house, you have an obligation to protect them. It's a stewardship. It's not about personal retaliation. You're not taking revenge. Instead, it's about you preserving the life of those that God has placed under your care. Listen, Jesus loved the church and he laid down his life for her, but he also protects us from wolves, right? And so if, if Christ protects the church and gives us the Holy Spirit, I think it's fair to say, husbands, be keeper of your home. Protect your home. Don't think that you just have to lay down and let yourself get killed. That is misapplying this passage. A lot of harm has come from people misapplying this passage, That's why we have to understand what it's talking about. It's not talking about an assault. It's talking about an insult. Listen, if somebody's trying to pound your face in, you could defend yourself. Why? Self-defense is not the same thing as retaliation. Retaliation is revenge. Self-defense is just trying to stop someone from hurting you. Okay, the motive makes all the difference. Now, there are two reasons we know that this is talking about insults. First, there's a lot of historical source material from the time that tells us that one of the most insulting, demeaning things you could do to someone was slap them with the backhand or slap them with your weak hand. I mean, that that was worse than the your mama jokes. You, You could not get worse than that. In fact, the insult was seen as so bad that you could actually press charges against them and they would have to pay a fine. Society was just like, dude, that's not cool. That's how bad they saw this. Now, the second reason we know that this is what's going on is clues in the text itself. Jesus identifies what cheek you're getting struck on. He says the right. Why would he say the right? Well, he's he's appealing to observation, common experience. 90% of people are right-handed. If you're going to get smacked by somebody with a right hand, but they're smacking you on the right cheek, they have to backhand you. That's how we know right? That's, that's why he says the right cheek, okay? It's not a strike that's meant to hurt you or incapacitate you or kill you. It's to insult you. So it's either a backhand or you could slap the right cheek with your left hand, which is the weak hand. Back then, if you get hit with the weak hand, it was a huge insult, but even worse, most demeaning was that backhand. I mean, you get hit with the backhand. There's just nothing. You're just like, dang, you know? I mean, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to do? You want to retaliate. And so put yourself in this position, 
It's the most embarrassing thing in that society somebody could do to you. People are watching. They're giggling. They're laughing. Some people are like, ooh, and you know what happens. When that happens, that blood starts boiling, right? And it stung a little bit. You might have got a bloody lip off of it. And so if you have the eye for an eye mentality, then you would want to backhand the person back. Or you might even want to press charges and let the judicial system humiliate this person by, by giving them a fine. But Jesus is telling us no. Now, if a cop happened to be walking by and said, hey, you can't smack someone, then yeah, you could let it take its course. But you're not the one who's supposed to go and, and like press the charges for something that's not a crime, that's just a slap like that. It's just an insult. So what's Jesus telling you to do? He tells you to turn the other cheek. Show him that you are not phased, that the insult does not phase you. When I was young and I was less mature, I had a very foolish way of interpreting this passage. I always said, well, yeah, I'll turn the other cheek. You have to turn the other cheek to execute a spinning back kick right into the person's rib cage. You know, so I'm like, I'm obeying this and I'm kicking them through the wall. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. And I had a martial art teacher that encouraged this nonsense. He always brought us to Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where Paul quotes Jesus, where Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. So if they hit you once, you hit them with the combination. I'm like, he's right, and it's biblical, you know? So I played along because I wanted to retaliate. This passage isn't about assault, and that is not what Jesus meant about it being better to give than to receive. He's talking about Thanksgiving baskets, not an attack by combination. Okay, so it is not likely the case that you're going to be slapped in our society as an insult, but it is possible. I know a guy that I grew up with who used to like to backhand people when we were in high school. Um, Kind of funny, but I haven't seen that in a very, very long time. But here's the thing. This doesn't just apply to a backhand. This applies to any insult. If someone says something that humiliates you, what should you do? Should you return fire? Man, let's just be real. If somebody says, you know, my mom is more, than, more of a man than you, should you really say, yeah, because she's got more hair on her chest? Is that, should that be your response? Ladies, if someone says something really insulting to you, should you say, well, I could give you a nasty look, but you already have one. Um, <laughs> If somebody insults your looks, should you tell them that their face makes onions cry? Um, I mean, we could go on all day with this. And it's not like I have a problem with quick-witted responses. Um, The point is just don't return fire with fire. A really good illustration of this actually comes out of Hollywood. One actor, two different movies. The actors, Russell Russell Crowe, the two different movies are Gladiator and Cinderella Man. And so if you remember Gladiator, you know, he's the good guy and you have this evil emperor who is, who's trying to get him to lose control by insulting the memory of his wife and son that the emperor had murdered. And so he's, he's, he's talking a lot of trash about how they died, hoping that uh, Russell Crowe's character would explode. But all he does is he takes the high ground. He says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. And then he turns away and turns around and walks away. And then the emperor looked really petty. Or in Cinderella Man, it's one of my favorite boxing movies. It's about the, uh, the true story of the heavyweight boxing champion, Jim Braddock. And his opponent, uh, Max Bear, insulted his wife. His wife threw wine in his face. And then Max Bear said, oh, look, he's got his wife fighting for him. And then everyone's like, ooh. You know, and this would be where you'd get tempted. But what did uh, Jim Braddock do? He's like, yeah, isn't she something? And then turned away and walked away. And then it made Max Bear look like the stooge. Again, in both cases, the good guy took the high ground, didn't retaliate, and then the other guy just looked like a total jerk. 
You know what that tells me? That tells me that even Hollywood knows what Jesus is saying is right. Because in some of their best moments and some of the best characters they've ever written, they give us people who took the high ground, and then we respect those characters a lot more because of it. So if Hollywood knows deep down, we don't have any excuse, brothers and sisters. And so Jesus makes it clear here. He modeled it for us. Also, Jesus gets slapped. He gets mocked. He gets insulted. He even gets beaten. And yet he never returned fire. But you might be thinking, all right, that's Jesus. And I agree with what Jesus is saying. But I know myself, what if I return fire? How, is the, can I make it right if I do respond to their insult with my own? You know what one of my favorite uh, instances in the Bible is? Is Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, because Paul was quick-witted too. And we'll see him do wrong, and we'll see him make it right. Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God and all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law, yet in violation of the law, you're ordering me to be struck. Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, it's kind of interesting. I find the account funny um, in many ways. Paul first starts off with, I think, the biggest mistake ever. I have lived before God with a good conscience. You are inviting a test a nanosecond later when you say that. He says that, and he gets slapped, okay? And then when he gets slapped, which is exactly the kind of slap Jesus is talking about, Paul retaliates. He doesn't turn the other cheek. He's like, God's going to strike you, you hypocrite. He calls him a white, whitewashed wall, which means you person with dead man, you're, you're going to hell. You're a hypocrite. You're just bones. Um, and so Paul's got some insults, some sanctified insults. He's using biblical terminology. And listen, he was rightly mad because of the hypocrisy of these guys. It was against the law for them to strike him. But it was under the guise of them enforcing the law that they're breaking the law against him. But here's the thing, their hypocrisy doesn't change the fact that he was wrong to retaliate. So they call him out on it. That's the, that's the high priest. And here's the lesson for us. Paul doesn't double down. He could have got really mad and say, well, high priest, and that's even worse on this guy. He should know better. But no, he doesn't double down. He realized he was wrong. He quoted the scripture against himself. So if you are quick-witted and you are given to quick comebacks, First, try to stop. But second, if you do it, just own up to it and apologize. Now, you might be saying, but pastor, the other guy started it. Of course he did. Jesus already said it's an evildoer. The person's evil. That's already baked into this. The high priest that had Paul slapped was corrupt. Nevertheless, own up to it and apologize. Next time, take the high ground and walk away. Or do even better. You respond with a blessing. You might say, are you out of your mind? No, because 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says that when we are reviled, we bless. That's actually the righteous opposite. So we could bless them in return. We are being called to a much higher ethic than the world. So don't take matters into your own hands. Well, insults are one thing. What if somebody's trying to cause financial injury to you? Well, that's covered by the next scenario. Jesus talks here about a lawsuit. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. 
Now, this is a pretty serious example. Most people in Jesus' time had only two garments. They had a tunic, which was the full-length piece of clothing that covers your nakedness. It's what's closest to your skin. But then far more valuable to you, you had an outer garment, which was your coat or your cloak. It was a thick item that kept you warm. And it also doubled as your sleeping blanket at night. Like you didn't have a jacket and all these outfits and then your own bedspread like we have today. That coat was your sleeping blanket. You could do without your tunic because you still got your coat. um, But it would be very difficult to do without your cloak or your coat. In fact, because of this, it was illegal for someone to sue you for your cloak. The Old Testament made it clear that, that you could not keep a coat as collateral. But you could be sued for your tunic. Now, we have to ask the question, why are you being sued in this verse? Well, it already, that already starts off assuming you did something wrong. You likely failed to pay someone back that you borrowed money from. Or maybe you negligently damaged their property and you have not paid them back for the damages yet. So now they're using the judicial approach against you. Okay, nobody just sues for no reason. They're, you owe them something. That's why they're taking you to court. Now, in our society, people would tell you to lawyer up and countersue the person. If if they use the judicial approach against you, you should use it against them. But Jesus is telling us the opposite. Still use the ethical approach. You're the one who failed to pay up. That's why the person wants to take you to court. So rather than fight it, acknowledge you're wrong. See, and listen, when you have nothing, the most they could do is sue you for your tunic. They can't take your cloak. That's illegal. And if you had anything else to your name, they would have sued you for that, not your undergarment. If they're suing you for your undergarment, they're just making a statement that, listen, this guy owes me and I want everybody to know that this person didn't, didn't pay up. The fact that you're being sued for a tunic here means you're broke in this scenario. So what are you supposed to do? Jesus says, don't only give the tunic, but give more than what the judicial system could ever require. Give the cloak. Why? Well, there'll be two results from this. First, it makes it clear that you're not trying to get out of anything, that you're trying to make things right. You will do whatever it takes to make things right because that is what Christians do. That's what people of integrity do. We're willing to go above and beyond so that the whole world says, all right, this man was not trying to to deny or escape justice. So we, we show what the Christian ethic is like. Second result is if you give the cloak, now you're naked. And we have to understand this. The person that sued you now looks like he has driven you to a place of poverty that not even the law would allow. No one will be taking that guy's side at the end of this. Just like with the insult, Russell Crowe's character looked good and the bad guys looked like like fools, petty fools. If you walk into court with someone trying to inflict harm on you and then you walk out naked and everyone sees him walking out with your coat, they are going to have pity on you. And they are going to see your opponent as a greedy, greedy fool. And I think it's fair to assume in this scenario, just to throw this out there, that you've already tried to make it right with this person before the court date. How do I know that? Earlier in the chapter, when Jesus was talking about anger in the heart, he said, be reconciled on the way to the courthouse. So you've probably been talking to this guy, trying to work it out. He's like, no, no, no. He's insisting on doing you harm through the legal system. So by you giving him more than the court can make you give to him, you are showing your desire to everybody that you're not being vengeful. You're just trying to make it right. This person's being vengeful. And listen, there's one more thing you need to understand. Okay, Jesus is using hyperbole. This is exaggeration. He's using exaggeration to make a point. 
obviously, willfully walking around naked would be sinful. He is not telling us to solve one sin, not paying somebody back, by another sin, walk around naked. No. Instead, he's doing what he did with lust. He's telling you to get radical. He wasn't really telling you to pluck out your eye or chop off your hand. He's just saying, do what you have to to solve the problem. And it's the same thing here. If you defaulted on a payment, pay it back and then some. That's what he's getting at here. If the person is greedily trying to punish you with the lawsuit, go above and beyond. God will see. God will take care of the injustice in the future. You just imitate your Lord Jesus. That's what we're being called to do. Now, it is very hard to think of an example today that we could map this onto very well because people can't sue you for your clothes today. But I do think it's fair to say this. Pay what you owe. Don't try to get out of it. And just because it's an adversary that you owe, don't use that as an excuse. Well, they're a bad person anyway. If I pay them, they're just going to use it for you. No, no, no. Pay what you owe. It's that simple. Pay what you owe. Don't try to get out of it. And don't forget that this is hyperbolic to make a point. So it is not telling you to give a person your house if they're suing you for your car. That is not what it's saying. He's simply telling you that you are not to resist giving your adversary what you owe, and don't worry if they get a little bit more, okay? Don't worry about that. The flourishing person, according to the Beatitudes, is poor in spirit and mourns and is humble and is a peacemaker. Listen, God will see to your obedience, and he will take care of your needs. That's what this is all about. The only reason we want to retaliate is we don't trust that God will take care of our needs and bring this all to justice later. Bottom line, don't take matters into your own hands. So Jesus has shown us how to deal with insults and lawsuits. The next one is government oppression. What he says here would have had the zealots or the patriots in an uproar, yet his words remain what they are. Look at what he says in verse 41. He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, what's he referring to here? In that time, the Roman soldiers had the right to take any civilian and make them carry the soldier's gear for one Roman mile. And one Roman mile is a little less than uh, an American mile. But they could just, you could be working, doing your daily job, and a Roman soldier walks up, you, grab my stuff, you are carrying it for a mile. The locals hated this. It was humiliating. It was unjust. It was a reminder that a greedy oppressor conquered you and sees your people as a little more than slaves. And so the Jews hated Romans because of practices like this. We see them do this very thing. It's called impressment, where they could make you carry something against your will. They do this to Simon of Cyrene in the Gospels. The Romans whipped Jesus so bad with that cat of nine tails that he had trouble carrying the cross to Golgotha. So what does it tell us they did? It says in Matthew 27, 32, as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. So this was just something you had to deal with, being somebody who was ruled by the Romans back then. Now, if the Romans forced you to carry something, most Jews would begrudgingly agree because they didn't want to get arrested, but they hated it. But they would not go one step further than that mile. Now, zealots, they would refuse altogether and they might try to attack the Roman, which often didn't end well. But neither the common Jew or the zealot would be ever consider going an extra mile. They would never consider cooperating with their oppressors. And yet Jesus is telling us that rather than being concerned with your rights, rather than being concerned with justice against the Romans, be good to them. Carry their stuff an extra mile. 
perhaps that Roman will feel ashamed that he treated you so poorly and yet you treated him with such honor. But if you mouth off, and we see this a lot with law enforcement in our days, if you mouth off and kick and scream the whole way, the soldier's going to despise you even more than he already does. And he's going to find excuses to treat you even worse, especially the Romans. He's certainly not going to be ashamed that he conscripted you for this mile. He's going to be like, I picked the right guy to carry my stuff for a mile. He's not going to be ashamed. But if you go the extra mile and you're helpful and you're cooperative, that might just change the way he thinks. And most importantly, God sees your heart. He sees that you are loving your enemy. He sees that you are doing good for your enemy just like God did for you while you were God's enemy. Because what does the Bible tell us? While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Well, likewise, love your enemies. That's what Jesus will tell us about in the sixth example of, of the law. But love your enemies. And who knows? Your enemy might be won over by your good deeds because that's what Jesus told us. Let your good deeds shine so that the world will see them and glorify your Father in heaven. This is what it means to function as salt and light. Now, we live in a context where we are not really oppressed. No one can force you to carry their stuff a mile. But we can still apply this with a lesser to greater argument. If any adversary ever demands service from us, and it's something that we have the ability to do, then what Jesus is telling us is we should do it. That simple. Okay? So dealing with an insult and a lawsuit and an oppressor, those are hard situations. But Jesus gives us no right to retaliate and to take matters into our own hands. The final scenario he gives us isn't how to deal with an enemy, but how to deal with the poor. Often the poor feel like enemies to us because they feel like a nuisance, right? Like, ah, oh, this person's just getting in the way of what I want to do for myself. And so taking matters into our own hands would be ignoring them and denying them. It would be to reason to ourselves, well, they're probably poor for their own bad decisions. They're poor of their own making, so let them rot. But here's the thing. Jesus does not give us that option. So let's quickly look at the final scenario, the beggar. In verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now this covers both those who are asking for alms and those who are asking for a loan. The person asking for, for alms, they're not going to pay you back. They just want a handout. Now the person asking for a loan, it's a loan. So they should pay you back. Our temptation is to avoid the discomfort of either. I don't want to have to worry about this guy paying me back and always saying, where's my money? And so it's just easier to say no. And also, a temptation, it's tempting to avoid parting with our money or belongings to help a beggar. It's like, I had plans with this money. I want to use it for me, and this beggar's getting in the way of that. But Jesus is telling us to be generous. Why? Because God is generous. So don't turn away from others that need generosity. As Pastor Josh was saying earlier, it's God ministering to people through his saints when we do good for them. Okay? So that's why we're generous, because then they see God's generosity. You know, the Bible has always commanded this of God's people. Psalm 112 verse 5 says, Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7 and 8 says, If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Listen, when we care for the poor and the vulnerable, it pleases God. 
There are way too many passages in the Bible that make that clear. This is one reason why our mercy ministry is as important as it is. This is why we're, we like to see it grow. We like to see everybody get involved in this. You see, as a church, we are commanded to take care of the needs of those inside, but we're also told to take care of the needs of those outside the body. So we should be increasingly seeking to be generous towards those outside the body that are in need. And this also holds true for you as an individual. First priorities to your household, but then with your abundance, we're also to look outside of our family. We're supposed to have an outward-focused generosity. Now, what we do, though, is we wrongly apply eye for an eye to the poor. We kind of do a reverse eye for an eye. We're tempted to say, if I do good for them, they can't do good for me. If I give them an eye, a good eye, they're not giving me a good eye. And so I'm violating eye for an eye if I help this bum out. They're broke. They're broke. So what would be the point of helping them? But again, that misapplies eye for an eye, and it's using it to justify our greed. Instead, this is what Jesus tells you. He tells you that it's good to give to those who can't pay you back. In Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, he says, On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And that brings me to a bigger point, being repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Why is it you could turn the other cheek? Why is it you could pay back extra to the person suing you? Why is it you could carry the oppressor's gear an extra mile? It's the same reason you could give to the poor. It's because God is the one who will ultimately make everything right. God will ultimately bring true justice and true balance to the world. And so when it comes to the poor, it tells you God will repay you at the resurrection with treasure that you can never lose. When it comes to injustice done to you by oppressors and adversaries, you don't need to take revenge. You want to know why? Because at the resurrection, God will dish out justice in a manner infinitely superior to anything you could conjure up. And so because of that, we are called to wait on his justice. We are called to live exactly the way Jesus is telling us in this text. And honestly, I think probably the best summary of Jesus' teaching is actually found in Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. I'm going to read this. I mean, Paul's captured what Jesus is saying here. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Very clear what's being said, what's being taught in the scripture. Our job is to live in this world as those who are poor in spirit and persecuted. That's the bracketed ends of the Beatitudes. Why are we supposed to live as those poor in spirit and persecuted? Because the kingdom of heaven is ours. That's what Jesus promises there. We're called to live as those who mourn, and we're called to live as peacemakers. Why? It says because we'll be called the sons of God, and we will be comforted when he wipes away every tear. We're called to be those who are humble, which means quiet strength. And we're called to be those who are pure in heart. Why? Because we will inherit the earth and we will see God. 
That's what Jesus says. We're called to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than revenge, and we're to be merciful. Why? Because we will be shown mercy by God, and we will be filled with righteousness. Now, if you notice how the Beatitudes worked, everything we're supposed to live right now is, in, is tied to a promise in the age to come. We live this way in this present evil age because of what's coming in the future. So we don't have to worry about avenging ourselves in the here and now. Just leave that to God. He's going to make it right. His justice is coming. And so because of that, we could focus on loving, with all of our, loving God with all of our heart and loving our enemies as ourselves, or our neighbors as ourselves, which includes our enemies. Okay? And we could do this because by faith, we're leaving everything in the hands of God. So brothers and sisters, may this be what's in our hearts. May we live this way. May we not take matters into our own hands because God's going to make it right. Now, for anybody here that is not a Christian, you might be thinking to yourself that this is quite an ethical standard that Jesus leaves for us. And you also might be thinking, why do so few Christians obey it? Perhaps you've been turned off by Christians that are snarky, insulting, and condescending. Maybe, maybe you insulted them, and then they insulted you back, and you thought to yourself, well, they're not holier than thou, because they're doing to me what I do to them. They're just hypocrites. But here's what I would say to you. They will answer to Christ for failing to obey. But I'll also throw this out there. This teaching is easier said than done. But all Christians must be striving to grow into this. Those who refuse to try to grow into this, they will answer to Christ for this. Rest assured. But you, unbeliever, you have a bigger issue. What about your sins? What about your insults? What about all the commands of the almighty God that you've been breaking since childhood, the billions of them? You want justice against the Christian for his hypocrisy, but what about, what about justice against yourself? One way or another, justice is coming, and God's justice is infinite. It's permanent, and all sin must be permanently judged. But this is where our Lord Jesus comes into the equation. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he entered his own creation 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life, never sinning, not even once. He practiced what he preached. He did not return insults. He turned the other cheek. He carried a lot more than, a, than Roman gear for a mile. He carried a cross with all our sins. And he carried it to the point of his death. And he paid for every last one of our sins. And then he rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Listen, Jesus is worthy. Yeah, we all mess up, but Jesus does not mess up. He's worthy. He's beautiful. He offers you salvation. Jesus says that if you repent, and what that means is if you turn away from your sins and you believe in him with all your heart, which means you surrender your life to him as Lord, he says you'll be saved. And even you're still going to struggle with sin, but you, you turn away from it and he'll take care of the rest over time. But turn away from your sins, surrender to him as Lord, and you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You will be granted eternal life. And then you too will be given a chance to imitate our amazing Lord and live the way that our text is calling us to live. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. Turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, and be saved. We're going to pray, uh, and then we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. And while I'm praying, you could pray to God yourself and tell God that you're turning away from your sin and that you believe on him and you're surrendering to him, and you'll be saved. You'll be saved. 
But if you don't, if you walk out still in your sin, you're going to face his justice. And we don't want that to be the case for you. We would rather you repent and be saved and inherit eternal life with the rest of us. So that being said, we're going to pray. And then uh, the worship team is going to come back up and we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. God, we just thank you so much for you giving us your word, even though it's a hard one because we all have hearts that like to retaliate. Um, But Lord, help us do what you said. Help us to have this, this, this right heart in, in how to deal with other people. And really, it's, it's, you're getting ahead of the, what you're about to teach about us loving our enemies. You're starting to show us what that looks like here. Um, so help us, Lord. Uh, may you be glorified in all of this. And uh, please save anybody that doesn't know you that's here. And we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.